Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I want to begin by asking a question because we're going to talk about a kind of a complex theological issue that pops up in this passage of Scripture. And I, and I, I referred to it way back, maybe the first or second week, but we're going to look a little bit more in depth of it tonight. But how do you come to grip with things in the Bible that seem to be, at first glance, an inconsistency? Or at first glance, seem to not quite make sense? Or like a paradox. You can't quite wrap your mind around it. Uh, so let me give you an example, like the Trinity. Okay, so, so cognitively, how do you map, wrap your mind around one God, one in essence, but yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal? It's true, but it's kind of hard to wrap your minds around these complex things. Okay, what about the virgin birth? Can you wrap your mind around that? I mean, these are true things the Bible teaches, but they're just really hard to wrap our minds around. How can Jesus be both fully God and fully man at the same time? Okay? So there are some things that are absolutely true that the Bible teaches that at, at first glance, with our human limitations, would appear to be either a contradiction or an inconsistency, but as you look at the Scriptures, you realize that there can't be a contradiction. Okay, so, so can we start there tonight that the Bible contains no contradictions? The Bible is true from cover to cover. It's consistent. So as we jump into chapter 2 and we wind down our study of David, uh, we come to a very perplexing question that kind of leaves you scratching your head. And I could simply skip over it, but you know me. I like to delve into the fun stuff so that we can look at these issues. Um, and so it's important because when you come across things in the Bible that make you scratch your head, you can do one of two things as a pastor or as a teacher. You can say, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, and I'm going to move on. Or you can say, let's dive in and figure it out. Because it's like the old Prego commercials. You remember the old Prego commercials? It's in there. <laughs> that, was their, that was their statement. It's in there. So here's the thing. It's in there. It's in the Bible. So if it's in there, and it's inerrant, inspired scripture, then it may be confusing, but it's true, and we need to figure out what it's saying. So, here's a question. How can God display wrath and love at the same time? How can God be both loving toward sinners and just toward sinners at the same time? And I'll give you the answer from the very beginning, okay? Do I have my clicker? Is it my pocket? Um, Shauna, can you do me a favor? In that um, top drawer, underneath the sound, or underneath, uh, that way, there should be like a little remote control clicker. No? It's black. Yes. Yeah, that's it. I should have brought it up here. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. All right, now we can click. Okay, so let me give the answer right from the beginning. And this answer does not necessarily show up in 2 Samuel, but the concept does. And so here's the question. 
How does God show both love and justice at the same time? And the answer is the cross. The cross of Christ displays both God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners. If you want to know the greatest display of God's wrath and the greatest display of God's love, it comes all together in the cross of Christ. And so we will see that tonight as we tie everything together. But let's go and look at this passage of Scripture. Um, This passage of Scripture, I think, divides up into three or four parts. And so we'll just kind of look at them in chunks. So let's look initially here um, at verses 1 through 9. And what we see is the severity of David's sin. The severity of David's sin. So let's read... um, Chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. Everybody there? Okay, it says this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arior, and from the city that's in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, then came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Okay. What should immediately stick out to you is this. You should immediately be asking the question, or two questions, okay? First, Why is God angry at something he incited David to do? Take the census. And second, what did David do in taking the census that provoked God's anger? Because we're going to find out that God, David got convicted of what he did, and then God judges him for this. Okay? So the first question is the most difficult. Why is God angry at something he incited David to do. Look at verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So who incited or impelled or moved in David's heart to go take a census and number the people? Well, here it says who? God. It says, the Lord incited David to do this. Now, at face value, you look at that and say, okay, here's the question. This is a very complex question. 
why does God incite David to do something that David's not supposed to do, and then when David does it, God judges him for it when it was something that God incited him to do? Okay? That's the question. Now, to make this a little bit more difficult, there's a parallel chapter and verse in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Here it says, Satan stood against Israel and, and incited David to number Israel. Okay, do you feel any better about this? God incited, Satan incited. Now, you may think to yourself, well, is God permitting Satan to do this? Or is God ordaining Satan to do this? Okay, here's what, here's what we need to understand. God can ordain a thing to happen without being the direct cause of that thing to happen. Satan can be a secondary cause to bring about what God wants to happen through influencing people. And then the person who does it is actually the one who commits the sin. So who, who, where does the chain start? With God. God incited David. Well, how did he do that? He incited David through Satan. And who actually carried it out? Did Satan carry it out or did David carry it out? David carried it out. Was what David did sinful? Yes. So the question is, why would God, or even ordain Satan, to influence David to do something that God obviously considers sin, and then later on, David's going to have to ask forgiveness for doing something that God incited. Okay, anybody have a problem with this question? You, this is a question that leaves you scratching your head. Okay, so here, here, let's just make sure we understand the issue. Taking the census was evil. It was wrong. And even Joab knows it. What does Joab say? Remember Joab? He's kind of a shady character, but sometimes he speaks wisdom. He looks at David and is like, David, do you think this is the right thing to do? Do you think you should number Israel? Do you think you should take this census? Okay, so the question is, God incites David to do something that God doesn't want David to do. David does it, and then God holds David accountable for doing it. Okay, are you scratching your head now? So, let me do my best to answer a few questions this, uh, this evening, and um, I think it hopefully will come into more clear view because this is kind of the deep end of the theological waters, which you come here on Wednesday night because you want to get challenged theologically. All right, so let's look at some truths that the Bible teaches. And by the way, let's just say this. The Bible, I'll, I'll explain this again later, but let me just lay my cards out on the table tonight. The Bible teaches two truths simultaneously that may at first glance appear to be inconsistent, but yet they are not. There are two things that can be true at the same time. Now, what the Bible often does is it does not explain how that happens, but it just shows you that they are there. Okay? Does that make sense? The Bible will say things and will assert things and will teach things that are both true but seem inconsistent and not necessarily fill in the gaps for us to tell it how it all shakes out. Okay, so... First, let's just establish some truths here. God is sovereign over all things, both good and bad. 
Now you say, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, I'm glad you asked. I got some verses for you. Okay? God is sovereign over all things, not just good things, but even bad things. Okay, Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all the deep. God can do and God does whatever he wants to do in heaven and on earth. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I make well-being and create calamity. It doesn't say I permit. I create calamity. Now, you need to struggle with a word here, okay? I'm going I'm to use two words, okay? And I'll let you be the arbiter of which one you think is more biblical. Does God merely permit things to happen, or does God ordain things to happen? And is there a difference? Is it a difference without a distinction, or is there truly a difference? Because here's the thing. Even if you say, okay, like I believe God ordains all things that whatsoever come to pass, that, that the confession says, our confession, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. But let's say you, you believe that God permits things to happen. Okay, even if you believe God permits things to happen, let's ask the question, could God, does God have sovereignty over what he permits and doesn't permit? So even if God permits something to happen, he could have stopped it and he didn't. So you still have to attribute, you can't get, what I'm trying to say is you can't get God off the hook. Either he allows it, permits it, or ordains it, but if you kick the curb all the way back to the very beginning, God either allowed it, and he didn't stop it, or he ordained it for a purpose. Okay? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God doesn't just predict what's going to happen. He declares what's going to happen from beginning to end. And he's going to accomplish his purpose. Okay, Amos 36. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Who brings disaster to a city? The Lord. Okay, and then Job 42.2, one of my favorite verses from Job. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, so truth number one that we have to come to grips with is God is absolutely sovereign over all things, both good and bad. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that. Okay, number two, God oftentimes uses the devil to accomplish his sovereign will. Now, don't ever think that Satan can do anything without God's permission or God's control. Satan is never a free agent that's running around doing things that God God is not either allowing or ordaining him to do. He, in other words, the devil can't act independent. He has to only do what God ordains him or permits him to do, which is, can be a freeing to think the devil doesn't have free reign over your life. He can only do what God allows him to do. And we think about Job, okay? And, and Whoa, there's kind of a huh noise. I don't know what else to call it. 
So Job 2, 3, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord brings Job up to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Okay, God, we could spend a whole time on Job. Okay, here's the interesting thing about Job. Job considers everything that's happening to him to be from God. He never once contributes it to Satan. But what do we know happens behind the scenes? Who's ordaining it all? God. But who's actually carrying it out? Satan. And then Satan's actually using the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and these, these pagan rulers to actually come and, and do harm. So, again, God is sovereignly doing things to get Job through a trial, but he's using Satan to do it. Okay? And then, interestingly, and don't ask me how all this works, at the end of the age, at the second coming, and around that time, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-13, the coming of the lawless one, this is the Antichrist, the man of sin. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God sends them a delusion. God works in these unbelievers to make them believe falsehoods at the end of the age. So you've got to come to grips with the fact that there are some things that God does in his sovereignty that may not make sense and oftentimes may use Satan to bring about his will. Yet, we need to be very careful. Here's number three. We need to be very careful with this. While God is never the author of sin or the direct actor of sin, he does ordain evil to accomplish his purposes okay so let me say this god is not the author of sin nor does god ever directly sin but god can sovereignly ordain sin to happen for his own purpose without actually being the one that does the sin again this is hard to wrap our minds around James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one Okay, let's go back to our verse. Chapter 24, verse 1. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. No matter how you slice it, God is the one that's inciting David to do something that goes against God's will, and God holds him accountable for doing something that God ordained for him to do. And the parallel passage says that Satan was the one that incited him. So, God will often ordain or decree that sin occur to bring about salvation. Or to put it another way, God sets up situations to sovereignly display both his wrath and mercy. 
Do we ever see examples of this in the Bible? So let, let, me, let me ask the question. Do we see God ordaining or deciding that which he hates, sin, to bring about that which he loves, salvation? I'm going to give you three examples. Does God ordain sin to bring about salvation? Yes. Okay, let me give you the first example. Adam and Eve. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Okay, let's just ask a question. Does God hate sin? Did God make Adam and Eve sin? No. Did God tell them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Okay. But what did God ordain? Let me ask it a different way. Did Adam and Eve sin catch God off guard? Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. What am I going to do now? Was Jesus plan to come and die on the cross before the world was even created? Yes. And for that to happen, there had to be sin. Or why would Jesus have to come? So we don't know how this all shakes out. The only thing I can say is that God ordained that Adam and Eve sin to bring about Jesus to save us from our sins. God set up the situation. God created Adam and Eve. Okay, whether you believe, okay, so Adam and Eve had free will, and Adam and Eve chose. Let's say Adam. Adam chose. Could God have stopped him from eating the apple or the fruit if God wanted to? Yes. And you could say God permitted him to do it. So God either permitted or ordained Adam and Eve to sin, to bring sin into the world, that which he hates, in order to eventually bring Jesus into the world to save us because of his love. Now, I'm not, asking you to, I'm not asking you to figure it all out. I'm just showing you that the Bible has these things. Okay, example number two, Joseph and his brothers. I'm not going to go back and, and read that, but does, what happened with Joseph and his brothers? Joseph was a little pipsqueak that came out with his father's coat of many colors, and what happened to his brothers? His older brothers got jealous. Now, is jealousy a sin? And what did his brothers do? One of the brothers wanted him murdered, and the other brother said, no, let's not murder him. That's going a little bit too far. Let's put him in a pit and sell him into slavery. Okay. And let's go back and lie about it and tell our dad, Jacob, that an animal got our son, or got our brother, got your son. Is all that evil? what those brothers did, is lying, is selling into slavery, and is hating their brother, sin. Yes. Did those brothers act freely in what they did? Yes. Did God put a gun to their head and said, you will betray Joseph? No. Okay. But did God ordain that it happen? Yes. Genesis 45, 5-8. This is Joseph after the brothers came back, and they're all freaked out because they think Joseph, who's the prime minister, is going to kill him. He says this, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What is Joseph saying? You sold me into slavery. Yes, you're guilty of selling me into slavery. But who is really the one that sent me here? God. And why? So that through God's sovereign working, he would raise me to be the prime minister in Egypt to bring about salvation during the famine so that Jacob's family could ultimately be saved. So there was an intention in the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, that which is evil, but in that same act of selling Joseph into slavery, it was God's ordained plan to have Joseph go through that to bring him to where he was at the end. Genesis 50-20. I didn't put it on the screen. Well, let's just turn there real quick. Genesis 50-20, you can turn back to, um, I forgot to put it in there. It's at the very end. It's the, basically, it's the same thing, but Joseph, I want you to read very carefully. I, I want you to read it with your own eyes. Genesis 50-20. And then we'll go back to 2 Samuel. As for you, he's talking to the brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring about many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, you meant evil, God meant it for good. What does it not say? You meant evil, God used that. Does it say God used that evil? No, it's the same Hebrew word. You meant evil, God meant it for good. Same Hebrew word. So what does the word meant mean? <laughs> it literally means to weave. But in the case, it means to devise, to determine, to plan, or strategize. In other words, there was one action. What was the action? Selling the brothers into slavery. What was the brothers' intention in that action? To do evil. What was God's intention in that action to bring about Joseph's rise so he could bring about the salvation of many? So think about it this way. Joseph's brothers did what they wanted to do. God did what God wanted to do. Did Joseph's brothers know they were doing what God wanted to happen? No. They were acting freely out of their nature to do what they wanted to do, but in the end, they were doing what God wanted them to do all along. Fulfilling Joseph's dream that God gave him in the first place anyway. So there are times in the Bible where God will ordain something evil in order to bring about something good. And the greatest example is the cross. The greatest example is the crucifixion of Jesus. Does God hate murder? Does God hate conspiracy? Does God hate betrayal? Does God hate innocent lives being killed? Okay. What about Judas? What do you do with Judas? 
I hear some people say Judas had free will. He could have done whatever he wanted to, and, and, you know, Judas had a choice in the matter. What does Jesus say? Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. It was determined for Judas to betray Jesus. Did Judas act freely in betraying Jesus? Yes, in the sense that did Judas want to betray Jesus? Did God hold a gun to his head and said, you will do this? No, Satan entered him. But it was determined that Judas would be the one to bring about the betrayal. But actually, if you, if you don't even buy that, just go to Acts. L- listen to what the early church says in Acts. Acts 4, 27 through 28. This is their prayer when they're being persecuted. For truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In that passage of Scripture, you see two things. Do you see the word predestined? Did God have a predestined plan for Jesus to die? Yes. Who carried it out? There's four names in that passage. Herod, the kind of quasi-king. Pontius Pilate, who's Pilate? He's the one that sentenced Jesus to die. The Gentiles, that's the Roman soldiers who actually nailed Jesus to the cross. And the peoples of Israel, that was the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and those that um, had those trumped up charges against Jesus. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus? You could say Herod. You could say Judas. You could say Pilate. You could say the Roman soldiers. You could say the Jewish leaders, and you would be correct. But behind it all, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? It was God's predestined plan for it to take place. So God predestined a plan to have Jesus killed, the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated, to bring about the greatest salvation ever accomplished. So in that one act, the cross, God can say, this is going to be the most evil thing that ever happened, and people carry it out, and yet from that come the greatest display of God's love. So we can't quite wrap our minds around it, but we have an example here in 2 Samuel 24 of God ordaining and citing influencing whatever word you want to use, David, to do something evil. And as we will see what happens. Now, let me just give you the biblical, or not the, the theological term for this, okay? I don't expect you to remember this, but just in case you're, you're wanting to know what the concept is, it's called compatibilism. Um, what the word compatible means two things can work together. Like what happens when a couple comes together? They're compatible. They're so compatible they should get married. Okay, what two things are compatible in the scriptures? Okay. The basic definition is that God's absolute and meticulous sovereignty over all things is compatible with human freedom. The Bible affirms two simultaneous truths. 
okay? The Bible, is, the Bible affirms and teaches both these and gives examples of both these. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. Have we seen verses that teach that? Yes. And then do we see verses where humans are responsible and accountable who act in accordance with their nature? Do you see both those things happening in the Bible? Yes. They're not in conflict with each other. Now, here's the hard thing. Those two things are there, but sometimes the Bible doesn't explain how it all works out. I've had people that I've had debates with on podcasts and on YouTube and different over the years say, well, how can you affirm this? And here's, what I, here's my answer. I believe the Bible teaches both. I can't explain it. I didn't wrap my, 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 my mind around exactly how it works, but I don't want to go against the Bible. Now, I may not fully understand how it all works out, but I know both these truths are taught side by side and they can't be inconsistent. So I've got to live with the tension that these two things are there. God does what he wants. Sinners do what they want. Sinners are responsible for the sins they commit, yet sinners are fulfilling what God wants. God doesn't make them sin, they sin freely. God holds them accountable for what they did, but in the end, they are doing what God ordained for them to do. Now, you can argue with it and say, I don't, I don't like it, it doesn't make sense, and I'm with you. I don't particularly like it, and it doesn't make sense, but it's there. I've given you three examples, and we have one here in 1 Samuel. And basically, I won't give you all of John Calvin's quote, but he basically says this, I'll give paraphrase him. If this is what the scripture teaches, you better be humble and just accept it. Can't explain how it all works out. Now, that's the first question we answered that should have jumped off on the page. How can God ordain something he hates and yet David be accountable for that? How does that all work together? Now, here's the second question. What's the big deal about a census? I mean, why is it wrong to count your troops? Now, the text doesn't tell us. But I can think of possibly two reasons why it's wrong. First, David broke the laws in Exodus about how to conduct a census God's way. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30 verses 12 through 14, when a census was taken in Israel, each man over 20 years of age had to pay half a shekel as an offering to the sanctuary. Now you may think this is a little oversight, but, but what does Joab say? Look at verse 3. We're back in 2 Samuel 24 now. Look at verse 3. Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. Well, the eyes of my Lord the king still see it, but why? Does the Lord, my king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. What's Joab saying to David? I mean, if God wants you to have a hundred times more than you have, God's going to do it. Why are you so bent on counting your troops? Joab's a little like, David, are you sure you want to go down this route? So number one, we could say, well, it was evil because David didn't do it the proper way. But let's just think about it. This is David at the end of his life. I think the most probable reason was David's pride. 
at the end of his life, he wanted to see, how big is my army? How big is my kingdom? I mean, I've trusted God to fight these battles all these years, even all the way back to Goliath. But now, you know what? I paid my dues. I've been king for a long time. Let me just count to find out just how many we have. I want the numbers game. And that's a temptation for all of us, I think. Especially pastors in churches. We're so into numbers. How many numbers did you have? How many people are coming? What are, what are your numbers? They're so into the numbers, the numbers game. And, and the numbers game does one of two things. It either makes you prideful or it makes you feel really inferior. Because if you have big numbers, what are you thinking? I've got great numbers. Look at how big my army is. Look how big my church is. Look how big my ministry is. I'm so awesome. Okay, well, if you, what if you're the guy that doesn't have the big numbers? Well, man, I must not be doing things right because I don't have the big numbers. I must be inferior. I must not be as talented as the guy or the girl down the street. I, my ministry must just not be successful because I don't have the big numbers. So there's always a temptation to put a focus on numbers. And that's really what David's doing here because why is he counting his troops? To see how big his army is. Why do you count your troops to see how big your army is? In case you get invaded, you want to know how many men you have to go to battle. But all throughout David's ministry and all throughout David's life, what had he always done? Remember the one thing we kept saying over and over again about David? If you go back and look, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. He's always asking the Lord in prayer what he should do. Well, here he doesn't ask the Lord what he should do. He counts anyway. Because he's trusting in his ability. Jeremiah 17, 5-8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for in its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Okay, so this first section leaves us with a quagmire. The Lord incited David to take a census, which was evil, Chronicle says Satan was the one who incited him. It leaves us scratching our heads like, why in the world is this happening? We may not know all the answers to it, but one thing we have to do is it's there. It's right in front of us. It says God incited David to do this. Now, let's move on and see what happens after David does this. He was warned by Joab not to do it, but he went ahead and did it. Remember, he goes through all the country from, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north all the way to the south and everywhere, and starts counting everything. And up to 800,000 uh, men plus the 500,000. So let's look at the sincerity of David's confession. Let's, let's look at verses 10 through 17. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, 
Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. (coughs) And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I've sinned, and I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry. So, (coughs) man... He's got 1.3 million troops, men, all over the age of 20. That doesn't include women and children. What happens when the number comes back to him? His heart struck him. Now remember, David's still a man after God's own heart. He's not perfect. We've seen a major sin in his life. But does David... What does David immediately do? Did he learn his lesson from David from Bathsheba? <laughs> well, think about it. Is David going to try to hide it? Is David going to lie about it? Is David going to try to cover it up? Is he going to brush it away? No, he immediately confesses. He immediately, he, he learned his lesson. And so he immediately confesses his sin. It says there, I have, in verse um, 10, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done foolishly. I've sinned. I've done foolishly. I've done iniquity. I'm sorrowful for what I've done. I've done wickedly. I've done it. Now, here's the thing the Bible doesn't tell us. Did David know that it was the devil that incited him? Did David know that it was the Lord that incited him? Probably not. What happened to David? He just did it it because he wanted to do it, even though behind it all it was the Lord. But he takes responsibility. Now, Gad, David's prophet, <clears throat> comes to him and gives David three choices. Three choices. Do you want behind door number one? It should be three years of famine. Behind door number one, you have three years of famine. Behind door number two, three months of an enemy attack. Or behind door number three, three days of pestilence. Now, what does David say? Three years of famine is a lot. So he says, I'm not going to go down that route. And he's like, I don't want to be, if I'm going to go out and die, I do not want to die at the hands of my enemies. I've been running my whole life from Saul, from my son Absalom. I'm not going to, I don't want to be attacked by another enemy. 
So I'm going to put myself in the hands of the Lord, and we're just going to do like three days of pestilence. And notice what he says there. Verse 14, David said, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. Let me fall into the hand of God. What is David saying there? Yes, God is going to execute justice, but at the same time, God is merciful. I would much rather resign myself to the discipline of the Lord than of other people. So Lord, do what you see fit with these three days of pestilence. Now, this kind of is, is another shocking thing in the text. How many people die? Okay, 70,000 people die, but David doesn't die. Who's responsible for the sin? David. Yet, I want you to go back and read very carefully verse 1. What does verse 1 say? You tell me what verse 1 says. The very first phrase of verse 1. What does it say? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It wasn't just against David. Now, it was kindled against the entire nation. Now, here's the mystery of the text. Another mystery. When you start reading the Bible carefully, these things pop up to you. You're like, okay, now wait a minute. We don't know why God was angry with Israel. It doesn't say why God was angry with Israel. But if you just go back and read your Old Testament, it's probably disobedience to his word. It's probably rebellion. So this creates another difficulty in this passage. We've already had a theological quagmire. But here's another quagmire. God's angry with Israel... And God punishes 70,000 of them to die and lets David live. And there's no reason. So here's the question. Does God owe us a reason? Does God have to tell us why? Does God always have to explain himself and justify his actions to us as sinful creatures? We talk about, we want transparency at the top. We want our leaders to be transparent. We want all the details. Yes, and human leaders, that would be great. But sometimes God says, you can't handle the truth and you're not going to get the truth. And I'm not going to be transparent. I'm not going to give you every detail. I don't owe you an explanation. Deuteronomy 29, 29, you need to plead this a lot. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to God. Meaning he doesn't, he doesn't have to share those with us. Sometimes God does things in the Bible and just does them and doesn't explain why they happen. Now, we want an explanation. God, I want to know why. You owe it to me, God. Whoa. That's kind of a strong thing to say. You owe it to me, God. Here's the real issue. Can we live with this kind of mystery? Can you worship a God who doesn't have to give you all the answers? 
Well, you have to. Because it's the God of the Bible. There's a lot of answers in the Bible that God gives us in His grace. But there are some things God withholds from us and we just have to live with that tension and that mystery. Now, who's the one that is doing the executing of God's justice? The angel. Remember the other angel back in Passover, the angel of death that passed over and killed the firstborn? I don't know if this is the same angel. It just says in verse 16, When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now stay your hand. God says, It's done. 70,000 were done. Now, here's what's very, very interesting. Where was the angel? You guys, look, where was the angel? At the end of verse 16, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Okay, we'll come back to that in just a moment. He's on the threshing floor. Now, why, why that detail? Why do we need to know where the angel was standing? On the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. But I want you to notice the imagery that David uses. Very Christological, very Christ-like imagery here. Look at verse 17. What does David say to God? Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. What is David saying? These sheep, the Israelites, they're being punished for a sin they didn't do. God, instead of punishing the sheep, let your justice come down upon me. Let your wrath come down upon me. In other words, in this moment, David is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But the real difference is that David deserved to die because he sinned, right? Jesus did not deserve to die because he never sinned. And he willingly laid down his life for his sheep that rebelled against him. Remember what Jesus said, said in John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So David is almost like a Christ-like figure here saying, let the wrath come upon me instead of upon the sheep. And that's a good request from David because he deserved to have the wrath. Now he wants it, he, he's acting as a substitution there. He's like, God, bring the wrath upon me because I deserve it. Don't bring it upon the sheep. And God doesn't honor David's request because David's a man. But what does God do in Jesus? Jesus, who never sinned, was totally innocent. God brought the wrath down upon Jesus because Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. All right. Now, let's look at this last section here. The satisfaction of David's sacrifice. Let's read it to the very end here. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. There it is again. That's where the angel was, and that's where David is to do his altar. 
his sacrifice. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servant coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, Let my lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. What in the world does the threshing floor of Aaron have to do with this? What's the significance? What's the location? Where is it? Very, very significant. Where is it? Well, you go to 2 Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the fleshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. The threshing floor is the same site as Mount Moriah. Now you say, where's Mount Moriah? All the way back in Genesis 22, when God tested Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice your one and only son. Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. The Lord said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham treks up to the mountain with Isaac carrying wood on his back, and they get to the top of the mountain, and Abraham binds Isaac on the altar and is about to dip his, his, plunge his knife into Isaac to kill him, and the angel of the Lord shows up there on Mount Moriah. And listen to what it says in Genesis 22, 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On Mount Moriah, a one and only son was to be sacrificed. And instead of that one and only son being sacrificed, a ram was sacrificed instead of the son, and Abraham named Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Where is the threshing floor 
of this Jebusite in that same spot. But not only that, what else do we find out? This is the Temple Mount. This is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is where Solomon would build the temple to the Lord. So Mount Moriah has major significance in the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis 22. Here where David buys it. Isn't that interesting? He buys the land where they're going to build the temple from this Jebusite in Jerusalem, right there. First Chronicles 22.1, Then David said, Here shall the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. So David builds an altar right here on the very same site where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, the very same site where Solomon was going to build the temple. And what ends up happening with this sacrifice? The word averted. That's the way the ESV translates it. It shows up in verse 21 and 25. Look at verse 21. Arana said, Why has the Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. What was the plague? People getting killed for three days. That the plague, so what was the purpose of the sacrifice? That the plague may be averted. And then verse 25, And David built there an altar to the Lord, and burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land of Israel, and the plague was averted from Israel. What does averted mean? Maybe your translations, I think, uh, that New American Standard says held back, NIV says stopped, King James says withdrawn. The Hebrew word means to hold back, restrain. Arrest, lock up. So what's happening here? God's wrath is being restrained because of a sacrifice of atonement in none other than the place of Mount Moriah. And notice what it says there in verse 25. The Lord responded to the plea. For the land. The Lord responded. The Lord averted. In other words, David's sacrifice of the animals on the altar satisfied or propitiated God's wrath against sin. The plague, God's wrath, was averted by means of a substitutionary atonement of an animal sacrifice on Mount Moriah. This points directly to the cross of Christ. God's wrath against our sin came down upon Jesus as the sacrifice, and it was averted or propitiated so it wouldn't come down upon us. You know the lyrics we sing in Christ alone? Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live on the cross of Christ God's righteous anger and wrath and justice against our sin was satisfied was withdrawn was averted was taken away because of Jesus dying in our place as a lamb of God 
The plague was averted by means of a substitute in this chapter right here. Our sin and God's wrath due our sin was averted from us because Jesus took it in our place. Mark 15, 33-34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those moments when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was taking the full wrath of God for our sin. Think about it in relationship to this passage. The plague of God's wrath against the sin of Israel was averted by animal sacrifice. The plague of God's wrath against our sin was averted by means of Jesus. And even Galatians says that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And then we see this in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed. God's wrath has been averted. God's wrath has been taken away by Jesus. Romans 5 9 through 10. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The blood of Christ saves us from the wrath of God. Now let's come full circle. What did I say at the very beginning tonight? Where's the greatest display of God's wrath and the greatest display of God's love? At the cross. The cross displays both God's wrath against sin and his love for sinners. So we see it full circle in this passage of Scripture. Let's just take out the difficult part of God inciting David. Let's just lay that aside because that's a mind blow. But let's just say this. What do we have before us? David sins. The nation sins. And because of David's sin, God sends his wrath for three days and kills 70,000 people. David is concerned about this, and so he says to God, my sheep, my nation doesn't need to suffer. Let me take the wrath. Well, David can't take the wrath because he's just a sinful human. And so David says, let me go to the threshing floor of this Jebusite, which is on Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed his son, where the temple mount is going to be, and let me buy it. And as I buy it, let me sacrifice animals on the altar, and the animal sacrifice will avert or will appease God's wrath. And what we find out in this passage of Scripture is God relented from his wrath because of a substitute. And this all points to Jesus as the ultimate Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice who averts or takes, averts God's wrath from us by taking it upon himself. So Jesus is punished 
He punishes our sin in Jesus who took our place and died so we would never be forsaken by God. He was cursed in our place so that we would never have to experience the guilt of God's wrath against our sin. So everything comes back to the cross. When you doubt God's love, look at the cross. When you doubt God's justice, look at the cross. When you doubt God's sovereignty, look at the cross. And when you feel the weight of your sin, look at the cross. But there's another word I want to show you in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 25. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, so the Lord responded. The Lord responded which means that he answered the pleadings and the prayers of confession and repentance. That's a wonderful picture. Anytime you hear the Lord responding to prayer, David was repentant. David was contrite. David offered a sacrifice. And the Lord responded with mercy. And it's the same thing with us. When we cry out to the Lord in our sin and we cry out for help and we cry out for his presence, the Lord responds. Now, let me be careful with the word the Lord responds. He may not respond the way you want him to respond, but he will respond. And how he responds is always going to be perfect and best. And so what we need to think about is Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I love that passage. He'll abundantly pardon. When you confess your sins and you turn to Jesus, he will pardon you abundantly. He will forgive you immensely. He will show you compassion. So, there's one other thing I want to show you in this passage of Scripture. What does Aronah the Jebusite ask David in verse 23? So he brings in all the oxen and everything for the burnt offerings. Verse 23, All this, O king, Arna gives to the king. And Arna said to the king, May the Lord your God, what? Accept you. That's a weird thing to say. May the Lord your God accept you. Here's a question for us. It's the same question. How do you know that the sovereign God of the universe who's absolutely holy will accept you? What's the only way God can accept you? How can this great holy God accept you? We often use the other terminology, don't we? I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Well, the real question is, has God accepted you? And yes, God does accept us, but how? It's only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross who turns aside God's wrath against your sins and forgives you with his amazing love. How did God accept David in this passage of Scripture? Through the sacrifice that averted God's wrath. How does God accept you? 
through the sacrifice of his son who took God's wrath in your place so that you could be forgiven, you could be freed, you could have eternal life. So this ends our illustrious journey through the life of David. Are there any questions tonight? Or did this totally get you off your kilter with too many theological quagmires and conundrums? I don't know if there's any questions online. Shauna, okay. Any questions? Today's world and what God's allowing to happen? Yes. Um... I'll give you a quote, and then I'll give you my opinion. Billy Graham said this back in the 90s. He says, if God doesn't do something quick to judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so Billy Graham said. Theologically, you kind of have to deal, <laughs> deal with that quote or whatever. There is two ways that God reveals wrath. Okay, there's, the, there's the, what I call the active wrath of God. This is like Sodom and Gomorrah raining down fire from heaven. This is the flood of Noah, which we'll talk about this Sunday. Like fire and brimstone, huge displays of wrath. Maybe like a tornado rips through or, or, or earthquake or something where it's visible. Okay, that's, that's, that's God's wrath. The other kind of wrath is in Romans chapter 1 where I call it a passive wrath. And that's the wrath where God says, I'm going to give you over to a depraved mind and see how that goes for you. In other words, God says, if you want to be wicked and you want to be perverse and you want to do your own thing, I'm hands off and I'm going to let you go. And the way it's worded in the, language, in the original language there is like God just kind of, like he's holding the reins, like he's holding the boat. Like if, you're, if, 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 if there's a boat on a river and you're either anchored or you're holding it's like God says, I'm going to let, let go, and then you're going to go where the current leads you. And so I think what's happening in our culture right now is God is saying to America, you want perversity? You want immorality? You want chaos? I'll give you what you want. And when God gives wicked people what they want and says hands off, there becomes all manner of evil. And we as Christians live in the midst of all manner of evil. And we are impacted by all manner of evil. And so that's why we've got to pray to be good witnesses and pray for our leaders and pray for our nation and pray against all this depravity. Because at some point, at some point, and Don and I often talk about this, at some point God has to say enough's enough. I mean, if you can't, as a nation, say what a man is and what a woman is, and there's just all this trans transgender craziness, at some point, God's going to have to say, enough's enough. Now, I don't know what that looks like. And I think there's hope. One of the hopes is, would you, did you guys ever think in your lifetime you would see Roe v. Wade get overturned? Didn't ever think that. Now, 
If it gets overturned, it just means it goes back to the states, which we live in a blue state, and they've already passed a really barbaric abortion law, so it's not gonna, it's gonna be pretty barbaric for living in Colorado. But the point is this, that's a good sign that we have seen a political process take it to where we've gotten some conservative justices on the Supreme Court that have actually made a decision that is in line with biblical truth. Now, it's taken a long time to get there. And whatever you think about Donald Trump, these are his nominees, three of them, to give us that majority on the Supreme Court. Now, we need to be praying for these justices because it is a, I'm starting to get kind of, it is immoral and illegal. Let me say this. It's immoral and illegal for people to picket and to um, protest outside the private residence of a judge's home. It's actually illegal. It's against the law in Maryland and in Virginia. You can't do it. But it's also, think about this. Do you want to live in a nation of mob rule where any decision that somebody makes can be overturned by threats of violence to get their way? If, if that's the country we want to live in, then it's going to be a mobocracy. Because whoever has the strongest voice and whoever has the, does the most violence and whoever puts the most pressure is going to win in the end. The rule of law goes out the window. And so the purpose is to put pressure on these judges so that they will change their vote, which they won't. So we're in for a... Um, just You're seeing depravity in, in full HD plasma TV color right in front of you. Wickedness. Depravity. And um, sometimes you can get discouraged and... You can think, Jesus, would you come back tomorrow? Get us out of this. Or you can be like Esther. For some reason, God has us for such a time as this. And we're here. So we need to pray. We need to lead. We need to be voices of truth. We need to let our voices be heard. We need to live according to the biblical principles. We need to teach our children and our grandchildren. We need to pray for revival. And if anything, think about this. As bad as it can get, if God is absolutely sovereign and good, cannot God change it in just an instant according to his power? Don't despair because God can change it. God can respond to the cries of his people. Now, I'm not saying that I know that God will or how God will, but I know God can. And so, what we should be doing is pleading with God to do what only God can do, and that is to change things. And that's to be an agent of change wherever God places us. You know, perfect example is there's two um, nominees for superintendent of RE1, they were in the paper. And there's public meetings to go get involved in who are next. So that's like local grassroots decision-making. Okay, that's, that's going to impact how your kids learn. So get involved in the, the selection of our next superintendent because that's where you and I can make a difference, grassroots. Um, so there's different levels of participation all the way from local all the way up to the very top. And so I would just say, yes, we see depravity head-on, 
but don't lose hope because we serve a sovereign God who can do the most amazing thing. And it may appear dark and hopeless and crazy and wicked, but if we truly believe in the God of the Bible, He can change. He can change it. So that's what we should be praying for. So you guys got my sermon after the sermon. That was unplanned, but anyway. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture. There's a lot of um, difficult things in this final chapter here. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but Lord, let us just leave with that one thought, that your wrath was averted through the sacrifice of atonement. And Jesus, you are that sacrifice of atonement. You are that perfect spotless lamb that was slain for us. And we thank you so much that you took the punishment that was due us so that we would never have to take it because of your great love and mercy. You laid down your life for the sheep that we might be forgiven. And so Jesus, thank you for being the true king, the king of kings. We've looked at David as the king of Israel, but Jesus, you're the true son of David, the true king of kings, the ultimate Lord and Savior, the ultimate shepherd of the sheep. And so, as we've learned from the life of David, help us to ultimately keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.